Sam Manicom is a world traveler by motorcycle and other means. He's the author of four famous motorcycle travel books. He devotes his life to telling others what it's like to travel, especially by motorcycle, and encouraging those people to chase their travel dreams. In my mind, Sam Manicom is an ambassador for motorcycle travel. Today, I'm sitting down with Sam to talk travel, adventure, and life. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manicom. Ted Simon. Austin Vance. Simon Pavey. Brian Phil. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Fair. Jim Hart. Liz Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. Sam Manicom was born in the Congo, Africa, running around barefoot chasing adventure. So you can imagine the changes for him when his parents decided to move to England when Sam was just 10 years old. He was a strange boy in a strange world, depending on how you looked at it. He was known as Jungle Boy by his peers. Fast forward to age 16, on a school break, Sam rode his new bicycle on a solo adventure to Amsterdam. So you can imagine with a start like this, Sam was already living a unique life, although he may not have known it at the time. Now, he has spent some time wearing fancy Italian suits, ripping around London in a sports car with the wind blowing through his hair. Now, if you've read Sam's books, or maybe you've seen him at an event, you probably think this doesn't sound much like the Sam you've got to know. We'll talk about that today. Sam's also a co-host on our monthly ARR Raw show. And if you don't know about Raw, just go to our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on Raw. Of course, you can find it everywhere podcasts are are heard. Sam's been on Raw since the very beginning of the show in his capacity as co-host. And in that capacity, he always does his research for each episode. I can depend on that. He is a rock in our crew, meaning he's always dependable, always encouraging because really that's what much of what Sam does is. He encourages others to chase their dreams, whether it's through his books, presentations, or as co-host on Raw, he's always encouraging, always positive. He lives his life that way. And, and sometimes for me, being what I call a realist, pragmatic to some degree, certainly playing devil's advocate, I like to prod a little to find out where Sam's outlook comes from and how real it is for others to follow. Okay, well, my name is Sam Manicum, and um, I was born and brought up in the Congo, but I am am English, I suppose I'm an Anglo-African. I'm based in the UK, and um, yeah, I ride a motorcycle and I write books. 
Sam, great to have you on Adventure Rider Radio again. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. You know, I almost don't know where to start. I mean, we, we talk all the time. You know, we, do we do raw once a month and we chat on there? I, I almost don't know where to start with this. But what came to mind when, when I asked you to do this was, I want to go, do you, do you remember the first time we had you on the show? Do you, do you remember one of the first things I asked you about? This is many years ago now. Oh, go on. You've got me now. That is many years ago. Well, at the time I was asking, I think it was, a, it was a question that I was putting to everybody at the time, define adventure. And you did, you, you gave your definition of adventure. How, how do you define adventure now? And, and of course, when I say define adventure, I'm, I'm talking about in the context of motorcycling. Okay. It'd be very interesting to know whether my answer this time is anything even remotely close to... No, I'm not going to give you a cheat sheet, Sam. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) I'm glad you don't. Because people change anyway, don't they? People's attitudes and mindsets and and so on change and you get influenced by different things. But I think that my attitude as far as adventure is concerned is probably pretty much the same. Um, To me, an adventure begins when you get out of an environment where you feel at home and familiar. Now, some people say that uh, you can't be on an adventure until um, you're way down the road. But for me, an adventure starts as soon as you leave um, the end of your drive because – but you need to be heading on a long journey. And ideally, it needs to be places – that you've never been before, places that you're going to be challenged, places that you're going to learn, places that you're going to be thinking, God, I didn't know that. And places where you're going to find out about who you are. In other words, things that stretch you in such a way that you haven't been stretched before. So you find out what some of your um, unseen talents are. I don't know about you, but um, I go through, I, I do things that um, I just think, oh, well, that was fun. And never think about it anymore. But then I find myself in a situation where I really need to be able to use a skill. And um, then I find out really how good I am at doing something. So what you're saying when you say places, are you talking physical places? Are you talking about, you know, places in, in life? I'm thinking very hard to work out what the difference is between physical places and places in life. Well, I mean, physical places, like you're talking about you have to go to a physical, a foreign location, someplace that you're not used to, or you're talking about situations where you find yourself in a place, a situation that you're uncomfortable with, where you have to find or have to use your talents to do something. I think true adventure is a combination of both. I think it's... um, it, it, this is one of the advantages of heading out on the long road because you see so much, you experience so much, you have so many surprises, you have so many challenges, you have a, an incredible number of moments where you just think, I didn't know that or isn't that simply amazing? And those are all things that make up an adventure. Um, so, But like I said, you know, adventures can start at the end of the road. I, I've never forgot, um, forgotten talking to a, a young lad who'd just passed his motorcycle test. I met him in a, a gas station um, in, in my local town. And uh, he and I got talking. It was the, the stickers on my panniers, funnily enough, and the fact that I suppose I was looking a bit scruffy and dusty because I'd just been riding dirt roads. And anyway, we got talking and um, he said to me, Jim, I'm, I'm going to Scotland. I almost didn't. I did, almost didn't say that to you because it's not really an adventure, is it? I said, but hang on a minute. A couple of months back, you couldn't even ride a motorcycle, and you're about to ride all that distance away from home. You're going to be finding camping spots. You're going to be riding all sorts of different road conditions. You're going to be riding through different cultures. That's adventure. So yeah, you're heading off an adventure. Um, have a ball. 
Is there a difference between the kind of adventure you'd have on a short trip like that, for instance, maybe going, staying within your own province, state, country, as opposed to a longer adventure where maybe you have a, you know, six months, a year, you're going to foreign lands. Is there, and I know there's a difference, but I'm talking about, is there a quality difference there? Is, is it a different level of adventure? Yes, very much so. And that's mostly because you are completely out of your home environment and um, frequently out of anything culture-wise that is something that you recognize and that you feel akin with. Now, this young lad that I was talking about, um, he was heading up to Scotland. Well, the Scots still speak a language that he recognizes. So from that side of things, it wasn't going to be so different. But um, for example, if you were to ride from the United States to Colombia, you'll find all sorts of different things going on in Colombia that you just don't find in the United States, especially when you get off the beaten track. Now, for me, that would be, for example, um, heading south through the Sahara and ending up in, ending up in the back of beyond of Uganda or somewhere like that. Um, Part of adventure, I think, is when you end up in places where everything sounds different, smells different, tastes different, and where you have to have your senses firing on all cylinders. You can't be asleep um, when you're out on an adventure. And that's one of the beauties, um, because you're naturally becoming tuned in and constantly ready for for rapid change. And yeah, that's, that's one of the joys. So for a true adventure, you, you need to travel to foreign lands. No, no, that's not what I mean. But actually, the sort of adventure that I really enjoy, yeah, that's what takes me into foreign lands because I've got a much wider spread of of things that I'm having to pay attention to, that I'm having to learn from. Uh, if I'm on a two-week um, trip to Scotland, for example, um, yeah, of course, I've got to be aware of where I can get gas from, um, my budget and so on. But when I'm traveling to, let's say, Uganda, then it's not only those things, but it's the cultural differences. What are what are do's and don'ts according to this particular culture? What's the situation with visas? What's the situation with the climate um, and so it goes on. You have to take all of those things into account and you have to learn from them. Otherwise, you can do things like end up in India in the monsoon season. And that's just no fun at all. But but what I mean is like, you know, and, and we talk about this a lot. I know we do on Raw as well. We say about, you know, any, anything's an adventure. And, and I do believe that. I do believe you can go and have an adventure in an afternoon. But what I'm saying is it's like a different scale though, isn't it? I, I mean, the, mm-hmm. and I don't, maybe I said true adventure and I shouldn't say true adventure because really it's just a scale. But, you know, if it were a scale of, um, and I keep coming back to the word of quality because I can't think of another word for it, but that that real adventure comes when you're completely out of your element, doesn't it? Isn't that what you're saying? And so that means foreign travel. I'm not trying to, to corner you into this, Sam. Yes, you are. You're pummeling me into the corner, <laughs> but that's all right. I don't mind. Um, do you know, one of the things that popped into my mind, just as you were saying that was, let's take the United States. Now, as a visitor to the United States, it's all foreign to me, except for the language that we have mostly in common. But if you take somebody, let's say, from Southern California and they travel across the United States, if they're looking carefully and they're paying attention and they're not sitting on the freeway, 
they are riding through cultural differences, through customs and habits and different foods and different clothes and um, situations that um, are completely challenging to them. And that's adventure, isn't it? But it's still within their own country. But, but it's a certain level of adventure, sure. And that's what I'm saying. So, so I mean, I don't know. Like if, if it was a three-bar limit, let's just say it was one, two, three. Three being the, the extreme where you're going to foreign lands and one being where you're going out for the day. I mean, you could put any numbers in between. All, all I'm saying is that are, isn't what you're saying, though, that the, the sort of the ultimate adventure would be... That, those foreign lands. It's when you're when you're away from your country, you're not protected by your your country laws, where you're not comfortable necessarily 100 percent because it isn't your country. You, you know what I'm saying? And I don't think yes, it's I dissing. Do. I I know because because I think the danger here is is dissing the small adventures, and that's always people's attitude with it. We don't want to diss the small adventures because they are great, and there's nothing wrong with it. Not everybody can go off on the multi year adventure. Uh, not everyone's lucky enough to do that, uh, but. It is a different adventure, though. You just hit a nail on the head very firmly there. And I think this is one of the things that's really important to me, um, that people get out of their home environments, even if it's within their own country, and they go off and have the adventures that they can make happen. But it's equally important to me that people get out of their own countries, because as soon as they start doing that, then they're just going to be flooded with all sorts of fascinating things that they've never come across before. And that's how we grow. And it's also how we return to our own countries with even more appreciation for what we've got at home, for things that we took, took for granted when, we've got, when we're at home, such as being able to drink water out of the tap. Um, I mean, it's such a basic thing, isn't it? But in many countries that you travel through long distance, you can't. You've got to boil it, you've got to filter it and all of those sorts of things. And yeah, those appreciations are really important. Somebody said to me once, an adventure isn't an adventure unless there's life and death involved. <laughs> and I had to stand and think about that. And then you think that's, I, that's my trips. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, hang on a minute. Um, <laughs> I tend to be a bit of a disaster magnet though, don't I? So mm. things sort of kind of find me to go wrong. But there's always a silver lining. There's always something fantastic that happens as a direct result of something going wrong. And when something goes wrong, that is when you find out who you are and how you're going to cope. And one of the things that traveling the long road teaches you is how not to panic, how to stand back and not be afraid of the situation that you're in, but to be more analytical. And that means that when you're in a situation where things are going um, wrong, you're not letting the panic emotion take over. Actually, you're standing back and you're looking and you're thinking, well, okay, so this has gone wrong. How do I get out of this situation? Where is there a door? And there nearly always is. I've always found one. Um, mm. And that door is sometimes there just purely and simply because you've been awake and you've seen it and you've got the ability to walk towards it. And sometimes it comes because um, somebody sees what's going on um, and gives you a hand. Um, and sometimes it comes because you've been patient and it's not obviously there, but just being calm, taking it steady. And a couple of hours later, you think, wow, look at that. And that wasn't there two hours before, but it is now. Come on, let's go. You said there's always a silver lining. It's almost like a belief system saying there's always silver lining. In other words, does it come packaged, the problem, with a silver lining? Or is it just you looking for something to learn from it? I think 
knowing when you go out on a big trip that things are going to go wrong, but not being afraid of those things going wrong because those things are part of an adventure. Like I said just now, it's when you find out a lot about who you are when something goes wrong. But if you if you are able to look at a situation where things are going pear-shaped and be curious about what possibilities are going to happen as a result of things going wrong that you might never have got involved with had that situation not gone so wrong. And if your mindset is that way, then you're awake, you're aware of of the new things. And sometimes it may be as simple as a road that you would never have thought of traveling along. And it's absolutely drop dead gorgeous. And you could have been riding 100 miles to the right and never known that it was there. So, yeah, things going wrong. We had the situation in, in Colombia, for example. We went into Colombia at a time when it was only just beginning to be peaceful. And a lot of people were not going there because it, of, of its, you know, the recent, well, the last 20, 25 years worth of pretty edgy history. Of drugs and, and, and killings and that sort of thing. Yeah, and banditry and kidnapping. And sure. yeah, um, it, it was a very uncomfortable place, I think, for visitors and locals alike. Um, very uncertain. Its own future. Its its future was, yeah, just very wobbly. And there were a few people that were getting mega risk, uh, rich, and a lot of people that were dying. And it was that life and death situation. But we'd been paying attention to what other people were saying as they were coming towards us, and we decided that we would risk it. Um, and we went in, and we were asking locals, not just willy nilly local locals, but for example, we would ask um, the, the manager of the hotel that we were staying in if we had liked him. So this is where we're thinking of going tomorrow. Um, what do you reckon? And that was always done very firmly in the thought that this might be somebody who was involved in something dodgy and we might be dropping ourselves in it. But after a while on the road, you, your senses um for whether somebody's um, a dodgy character or whether they're genuine, they get pretty fine-tuned. Somebody's got to be pretty smart to be dodgy and for you not to pick it up. So we felt quite comfortable doing this. And there was one day when um, the chap that we talked to said, "Um, listen, don't go down that road today. Where's your map? And we got the map out and he said, go this way instead. You'll enjoy it. And we went that way and the road was rammed with local vehicles, not a foreign vehicle there at all, but it was all local vehicles. These guys had all heard the news as well. And it was an absolutely fascinating journey. We talked to an awful lot of people at um, um, truck jams as they were trying to get around these two tight corners for these big um, semi trucks to get around. And um, people had sort of taken advantage of the situation and they'd gone up there with a car load of um, fizzy drinks and sandwiches and they were just walking along selling. Well, actually it was tamales. Um, or sandwiches, but um, it, it was it was just great that because we weren't phased by what was going on, we knew that there was a risk below somewhere potentially, possibly, but we'd been steered clear steered clear of it, and we had a thoroughly nice journey on this road up into the hills, some drop dead gorgeous um, views that we would never have seen, and when we came back down to the main road on the other side of a river, having used a smaller bridge, we were told that the bridge that we would have been going across had been blown up. And it was blown up at about the time that we would have been there. Wow, that sends chills uh, down your spine. 
Well, it does. But this is where, you know, people are generally out there looking after each other. And this, well, the, wait, the, wait a second. Hunt- I, I don't know. You just talked about a bridge being blown up. That's somebody not looking after somebody else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, there are there are skullduggerous people out there, and um, sometimes in such in country situations get hotter than they than most of um, the inhabitants would like it to be. The years of travel have taught me, and I firmly believe this, that around ninety five percent of people that you come across um, in this world are actually they're fine. Um, 4% aren't okay from one day to the next. You know, they may be opportunists or they may suddenly be broke and desperate or whatever else it may be. Um, But it's only around 1% that are out and out villains. And when you look at that sort of percentage, um, that's fine. I'm really happy to live with that. 95% of people, if you treat them with respect, you get respect back. That's a huge percentage, and and even one percent, even one percent villains. So that that could be quite a number of villains, <laughs> you know, in a big number. Well, of it pl- can be, but the chances of you being in the same place as a villain, if you're mi- minding your p's and q's, such as when you go into a big city, you you just don't go to the dodgy part of the city, because that's where you're likely to find the villains. So you just mm-hmm. don't go there, and that means that you're not likely to meet the one percent. Um, so a lot of travel is common sense, and it 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 is literally using. Um, common sense and advice. You talk about, um, you know, being able to pick up on people and and tell, you know, if, if somebody has ulterior motives and they're trying to pull something over on you. That's obviously changed from, you know, Sam, before you went on this trip. Of course, you've been traveling your whole life. So I don't know. Is this something that you've sort of developed your whole life? Is this just been a gradual change for you? Or, is there, or, or with that 10-year adventure that you did, was there a huge change from the start to the end of that? There have been some um, some gaps in between the various trips um, that I've done. So I've I've been able to do three year trips before and things like that, and um, then a, a lot of shorter ones in between and and so on. So yeah, I've been travelling for a lot of my life. I'm incredibly fortunate to have been able to do that. I'm not using the word lucky on purpose because when you spend as much time traveling as I've been able to, then you're working like stink to to save the money to do it. And you're not buying the latest television or whatever else it is. You earn the ability uh, to go out and travel and you do without a lot of things. And that's fine because it's just a priority that changes. Um, As far as um, honing um, senses and skills, the road teaches you that. Um, the longer you're out there, the more experiences that you have, the more um, balance you get, the more perspective. And it's if you're a curious sort of person, then when something does go wrong, then you're going to be asking yourself, well, what happened there? Why did that happen? And I'm not immune to doing completely stupid things and I'm not immune to doing um being taken advantage of by people. Usually when it happens, it's because I'm under par. I might have been sick. Um, I've I've told you the story about um, being taken advantage by the money changers in um, Zimbabwe. And God, how stupid was that? But, you know, I was just recovering from malaria. I was desperate to get money. And money changers was the way to do it at that particular time. And where my senses normally would have been screaming warnings at me, they weren't. I was just doing a zombie impersonation and these guys took one look at me, rubbed their hands together and were off with, off with my money. Fortunately, it wasn't a huge amount. But um, about six months later, I could laugh at myself on that. 
Mm. Yeah, because it was such an obvious one. I mean, at that point, you already had some experience under your belt as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was really stupid. I should never have let myself get into that situation. But this is one of the things that you learn when you're on the road. When you aren't well, then your senses, your cylinders aren't all firing. Mm-hmm. So be extra careful. That's a like sixth sense or gut sense. But what sort of things do you like? Can you nail it down? Like, you know, if you see somebody and come in, would you be able to teach somebody how to get a gut feeling on what the person's motivation is? Cool. I've never thought about it. We're going to take just a quick break. I got some things I want to tell you about, which I'm sure you're going to like. And then when we come back, we've got a lot more to talk about with Sam. Stay with us. The best throttle lock that I've ever tried, hands down, is the Atlas throttle lock. Now, in case you don't know what a throttle lock is, Basically, it's just a device that holds your throttle in a given position. So it's kind of like a cruise control in purpose, except that it doesn't increase or reduce your throttle automatically. That's really something that has to be built in from the factory and is not very common on adventure bikes for a number of reasons. But the Atlas throttle lock is designed to go on just about any motorcycle. Very simply, it just clamps on. You can get on in about 10 minutes. It's designed to give you that freedom you get when you don't have to keep your hand locked into position. It's a beautiful piece of engineering, by the way. It's uh, designed and owned by riders just like you, Heidi and David Winters. They came up with the idea when they were on a trip and were frustrated with what they had. It's not only beautifully engineered and beautifully made, it's all solid metal. It's got um, two buttons on it. That's It's as simple as that. One is engaged, one is disengaged, and it's pretty universal. So you can move it from one bike to the other. You simply set your throttle position, and if you need a little more throttle, you don't have to unlock it. You just twist the throttle up a little bit. It'll hold the new position. Same as decreasing the throttle, you know, if you're going down a hill. Comes with a two-year warranty, and uh, anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. It's called the Atlas Throttle Lock. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Turkana Gear is a new motorcycle luggage company founded by experienced riders and travelers that sort of felt like there was something missing on the market. Mickness and LSB, Olivier, they're from Peaky Peaky Overland, and a few other travelers have combined their experience of travel and motorcycles to design luggage that they say is tough, durable, long-lasting, and affordable. And their idea was to design luggage that sort of exceeds the requirements for the tasks, lasts for years, yet doesn't break the bank. So it leaves more money for you to do what you want to do. Ride, explore, travel. Soft panniers, dry bags, duffel bags, handlebar bags, all designed for travel. TurkanaGear.com is the website. Turkana is T-U-R-K-A-N-A. There's a link on our website, of course, to that if you have any trouble finding it. TurkanaGear.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. TurkanaGear.com. IMS Products has been around since 1976. Way back in 1976, over 40 years ago, well over 40 years ago, they started making uh, hard parts for motorcycle racers. They continued to do that through the years, and just about every off-road racer has some IMS product on on their bike now, especially in the top levels. And there's a reason for that, because they take what they've learned over all of those years and they apply it to everything new they make. The company's always been run by ex-racers, off-road racers, motorcyclists, and it's still that way now. The owner is still a motorcyclist and they stand behind their products. They have a full line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs, everything from the large ADV-1 and ADV-2, which is a huge platform, really nice for adding control and leverage to your bike, but as well giving you some comfort for the long stretches. So 
if you're doing that type of riding. If you're doing more technical riding, they've got smaller, more aggressive uh, two-foot pegs. Their website is imsproducts.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. that's a like sixth sense or gut sense, but what sort of things do you like? Can you nail it down? Like, you know, if you see somebody and come in, would you be able to teach somebody how to get a gut feeling on what the person's motivation is? Cool. I've never thought about it. Cause I, I remember I told you about the one that I had. I, there was, there was two people, they were going to kill us for sure. I think they were probably going to, you know, bury us and, and take our vehicle. Okay. My imagination's running, but, but that's the mm-hmm. feeling I had. These people were, they, there was just something about them and I cannot tell you what it was. This is my worst one that I've ever had. I've had lots of gut feelings uh, w- with people, you know, where, where you feel uncomfortable and you know, this is, there's something wrong, but these guys, they were, they were nasty and they ended up coming back. And I, I think I told you the situation we were camping and, um, they, there was something about it, but, but I can't nail it down. I, I can't say it was the way the guy's face twitched when he spoke. It was the way he stood. They seemed friendly, outgoing. They looked a little rough, but something didn't fit. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time you can tell because the person looks shifty, you know, it, the, 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 the medics and the psychologists will tell you, look, if somebody's eyes flick to the left-hand side when they're talking, then they're probably lying. So those sorts of things that you can learn. And it is quite interesting. Well, that's because they're inventing something, right? That they're, they're creating exactly. something when they look to the left. Yep, exactly. And when people can't look you straight in the eye, that's often um, another indication. Um, body language generally. Um, are they shifting their feet around? Do they, do they look as if they're uncomfortable? Um, people, people give themselves away a lot with their body language. But the real out-and-out villains, no. They've got no consciences at all. So a lot of those indica- indicators, I don't think, they're just not there. But, when, but I think out-and-out villains, you can sense something is wrong and as your senses were working um in in that situation and your warning um antenna they're just wobbling around all over the place saying no this is not a good situation Mm -hmm. i need to leave if i possibly can and i need to be able to do so in such a way that i'm not going to spark um an attack of some sort you know, um, you, you obviously have the travel bug. We talked about the fact that you, you traveled before when you were a kid. You, you started backpacking, I think, is, is what it was. Was that what it was? Backpacking was your first thing? <laughs> no, you went with your parents well, was, first, didn't you? Yeah, well, being born and brought up in, in the Congo, um, that was a great place. You know, I spent most of my time running around in a pair of um, shorts and barefoot and no T-shirt and all the rest of it. It was it was just brilliant. Um my parents didn't know where I was half of the time. And if they'd known what I was doing most of the time, then they would have been freaking out. But, well, you know, that's the environment and, and boys can. And if you've got a, a good streak of luck, then you get away with all sorts of stuff. But it was a fantastic place to grow up because it taught me um, the value of um, running free, um, of exploring, of, of trying things. Um, but also, I suppose, to a certain extent, it started to hone the common sense as well, because, yeah, when you're in an environment with snakes and other wild animals and so on, then, yeah, you, you kind of need to learn those things. Well, for those who don't um, know, what is it, what is the Congo like? The Congo is um, 
should be one of the most wealthy countries in Africa, but um, unfortunately the colonialists got their hand, hands on it. And what I think should be split into three countries that would have the chance of being um, profitable and more peaceful because they're along tribal lines and so on. Um, well, of course, that's never happened. So um, Congo had, um, or the Dem Democratic Republic of Congo, um, I sorry, I always think of that as the not-so-democratic Republic of Congo, had um, one of the longest-running civil wars in the world, and um, it still has um, snippets of that happening now. Um, there are some very dodgy parts of the country. When overlanders go through, um, they need to be fully aware of, of what's happening in the different parts of the country at that particular time. And there's lots of militias around, as well as the, the national government, army, and, and so on. But it is um, an absolutely beautiful country. It's um, Because it's so big, it's incredibly diverse. And um, uh, the, the Congo will teach you one of the best things about Africa, and that is even when things are dire, um, the sense of humor is strong. Um, once people learn not to be suspicious of you, they're very quick to laugh. What age did you move from the Congo? Um, my parents went back to the UK when I was 10 years old, which was um, a very odd time to leave somewhere like that. Um, I knew nothing about living in um, a first world country. I'd never worn a school uniform before and going from barefoot playing soccer to having to have lumps of rubber and leather on the end of my legs was, was such a weird experience. But there were bonuses. I didn't know about... Um, um, chocolate and um, toffee bars and things like that because of course in, as a kid out there you, you didn't have those and I developed a real passion for apples because we had all of the tropical fruits you know mangoes and guavas and papayas and lemons and oranges and avocado pears and things like that but we didn't have apples and we didn't have pears and all of those sorts of things so there were again a lot of um, silver linings the new fruits but my first solo trip was when I was 16 years old I'd, set, I'd been working like crazy doing paper round and odd jobs and things like that and bought myself a brand new bicycle and the school holidays were coming up. So I borrowed a, a page out of my school atlas and set off to, to ride into as much of Europe as I could um, manage to do during my school holidays. And the scale of the map was absolutely rubbish and I got lost so many times, but it didn't matter. Because I, was, I had a compass, so I knew I was roughly heading in the right direction. And I ended up at the wrong port, and somebody told me, oh, well, you want to go to the one further down the coast. So I got back on my bicycle and headed further down the coast. And it was just sort of things like that. And one of the things that that trip taught me was making it to a destination isn't the most important thing. The most important thing is all of the things that happen to you the people that you meet, the experiences that you have along the way. So, in other words, every day, has got adventures and things that are quirky, things to learn from, things to laugh about, and so on. Um, and what a, what a blessing it was to learn that age 16. Fantastic. How did you learn that lesson, though, about the destination on that trip? Um, I really wanted to get to Amsterdam, and I nearly didn't make it because I was running out of time. I'd got so sidetracked by all of the different things that there were along the way to, to stop and look at and, and so on um, that, yeah, um, the school holidays were burning up fast and I still had to get home. So I got to the stage where I was, I, I went through, no, I'm not going to make it. Uh, that's really bad. Amsterdam's supposed to be fantastic. So, well, yeah, okay, but I've been having a ball already. 
um, I can go back to Amsterdam another time. I did actually make it and I spent um, two nights sleeping on the streets in Amsterdam, um, which was just a wonderful experience in itself. Completely mad thing for a 16-year-old to do. Um, but it was fine. I found nice little corners to tuck myself away in and I don't think everybody, anybody knew that I was there. I arrived after dark and I got up first thing in the morning before anybody was around and that was fine. I then had the whole of the rest of the day to to mooch around with my bicycle and um, meander down the the canals and, and wander the cobbled streets and smell the funny scents that was in the air and you know all of these sorts of things. Um, marvel at the ladies in the windows with no clothes on or very little clothes. Um, for a sixteen year old, that was an eye opener as well. I but um, but uh, yeah, that was a really good thing. That the whole trip um, because I learnt those things. Um, that that was fantastic because. I think from that time onwards, I stopped rushing um, to meet deadlines on a journey. Um, and it, it, it taught me to to value the day, value each day. The only deadlines on a really big trip are what your budget's doing, what the weather's doing, and how long your visa is. You must have come back from that trip feeling like a an adventurer. I came back from that trip with the first experience of... Um, self-imposed, nobody else knowing what on earth I was talking about. Now, I'm saying first experience of self-imposed because when we came back from, from Africa, I was known as um, the jungle boy for the first um, couple of years that I was back because... You mean when you first moved to the UK? Yeah, because yeah. nobody understood me at all. My my whole mindset, this, this whole business about um, knowing about monkeys and snakes and all of the rest of it, that nobody had a, a clue what that was about. So that wasn't self-imposed. That was, that was just the way it was um, from my parents' lifestyle. But this was me coming back, having learnt those things. And the rest of the kids have been doing things like playing soccer and um, going fishing and all of those sorts of things, which are great. Nothing wrong with those. But... I'd had my first adventure. Do you think that's why you ended up the way you did? Uh, you know, uh, I mean, because your, your parents bring you up in the Congo, you grew up the way you did, then you come to first world UK, then you head off on, on the cycling adventures. Is this sort of the, the background that sets someone up for the way you live now? I think to a major extent, it was what set me up. But everybody that you meet on the road has their own key points that have spurred them to go off and to travel the long road. And everybody's key points are, all, are fascinating. It's one of the things that I love to talk about when I meet a traveler for the first time is, you know, how did you come to do this? What inspired you? Um, what sort of things did you learn before you, you headed out this way? And uh, what did you want to learn? And all of those sorts of things. But they're an interesting bunch out there. Sometimes you don't meet very many, um, except at crossroads. Why aren't you traveling now? You, you did your 10-year your stint. You did this other trip on, on your bicycle, and, and I know you went backpacking as well. And, and you've done this, this massive 10-year trip, as a matter of fact, that you, they wrote the, the four books about, Into Africa, Under Asian Skies, Distant Suns, Tortillas to Totems. Mm. Um, those four books cover that adventure, that 10-year adventure. Why has it stopped? Um, I ran out of money and so had to start completely afresh. Well, all right. No, I didn't run out of money because I'm I'm one of those people who believes that it's a much happier situation to come back still with a bit of cash in your pocket. 
you still got to do things like get um, the deposit for somewhere to live and all of those sorts of things. So I think that it's a much happier situation to come back still with a bit of cash in your pocket. So I wasn't completely broke, but life had to start all over again. And uh, we were very lucky, but then it was a case of, of building you know, so enough enough money to go again. And we've travelled a lot of shorter trips in in um, in the time since then. Up until um, the year before last, I'd still spent more of my life outside of the UK than in it. So that kind of puts things in balance. Now I tend to head off and do six weeks to two months trips, those sorts of things, and then I can come back and I can refresh the coffers again. But the books. And the whole point of doing the books is one of the things that's meant that I've not been so interested in heading off on um, another big trip. I've done quite a few. So it's been the whole business with the books has been a complete new adventure, um, a whole new world to learn all the history and the geography of this and the techniques and the styles and and the whole lot. It's It really has been a new adventure and it's been fun. Um, but for me, the whole point of the books is I want to share the fun of the road with people. And I, I wrote the book for three groups of people in particular. I wrote the book for the person who would um, love to travel long distance, but um, is anchored by responsibilities for now. And I think the tales of the road that I've woven into the books um, with uh, full of hints and tips and that sort of thing, um, hopefully will keep a person inspired, but will give them a chance to learn so that when they can make their own trip happen, um, then, you know, I've, I've kind of helped that, keep that dream alive and help to make the trip happen as itself. I've also very much aware that the people um, who love to read about um, motorcycle and long distance travel in foreign lands, but are quite happy sitting in their sofa at home with a beer or a cup of tea in one hand and the book in the other and just to be entertained and to learn. And I love the opportunity to to share um, with those people. I guess the other the group of people I've written for as well is the people who would love to travel and just need that little bit of encouragement to think, I could do this. And actually, it is an absolutely wonderful thing to do. I want to make this happen in my life. One of the best bits of feedback I've ever had um, since I've been writing the books was actually quite insulting. But um, I laugh about it now because it, to me, it's, it's part of the joy of writing and joy of sharing. I had an email from a guy and um, uh, the first email said, um, Sam, you bastard. And it didn't say anything else. And I thought, wow, what have I done now? <laughs> The email, next email came in from the other day, uh, the next day, and he said, Sam, I read your book Into Africa. I thought if an idiot like you could, could do a trip like this, and so can I, I'm sending you this from Nairobi in Kenya. And to me, that one email made Into Afri- Africa a success because I'm not anybody special. Um, I've just been able to make a journey happen and survived it and been able to share the fun. So, yeah, that was, God, you know, the, um, the hair on my arms has just risen as, I, as I've told that story. Um, yeah, that's, that's what, for me, writing um, books is all about, to share and encourage. And, yeah, it's, it's, it's good fun to do. But it's time-consuming, especially when 
you're not with a big publishing house and big publishing houses have the people who are doing the marketing and the websites and the magazine interviews and all of that sort of thing. When you publish like I have, then you're very much a one-man band with his friends. And actually, I kind of like that because it keeps your feet very firmly on the ground and you remain who you are. Um, I don't think I've ever become a big head as a result of doing what I've been doing. I'm just more passionate about sharing. But when we were talking about defining adventure, you'd said that, you know, that there's a real adventure, a real um, a thrill, I guess is what you're saying, to being somewhere that's foreign, somewhere where you're, you're pushing your limits. How do you get that now? And, and the cycling thing, too. You, you were very excited about your cycling trip, you know, where you mm-hmm. went off and you, and you learned things about yourself. How do you get that now? You've, you've done the, the, a really big trip, the 10 year, you've written the four books. How do you get that though? From this, from the smaller adventures, don't you feel like you're missing something is what I, I guess I'm, what I'm, I'm getting at here. Yeah, of course. Oh, absolutely. Without doubt. I mean, the, the opportunity I, and I could make the opportunity to head off again for um, three years or whatever. Um, yeah, I could do that, but I'm really enjoying what I'm doing now. And the itch is being well and truly scratched by doing the smaller trips. They tend to be in countries that aren't my own and so many of the um, adventure boxes are being ticked because I'm going to places where I don't know what the food tastes like. I don't even know what half the things are on the menu. I don't know how people are earning their money. I don't know the history of the buildings. I don't know the politics of the country. I'm learning about the climate, um, etc. I can, you know, I can list that, keep listing those things. So each time I head off on a trip, even if it's um, two months, I'm learning all of those sorts of things. And one of the joys for me in recent years has been spending a lot of time in the United States. And every time I I head over to the United States, I'm traveling in a different part. And I very much look at the United States as being united countries because when I roll across um, a state line, I am rolling into into a different culture. And it's, it is the food that I'm seeing. It is the difference between the hats that people wear from one state to the next or the boots that they wear or the type of agriculture or the type of buildings even. And so, you know, all of those sorts of things I'm learning every time. And um, yeah, it's, I love it. It's great. I remember, I don't remember actually how I ever came across your book into Africa. I have no idea how I came across it, but I do remember distinctly sitting down and reading it. And that feeling that I got from it, that um, it's one of those books you don't want to put down. It's uh, and, and I, what I found myself doing is reading your book when I should have been doing other things, you know, sort of stealing time from something to read your books. And then one book drew me to the next, to the next, to follow your adventure. So from my perspective, like I would love to have you off on another trip so that I could get some more books, some more adventures, some, so I can, I can learn some more and experience more vicariously through your adventures. I, I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, I'm, I just can't get my head around is that, that you're, you're sort of done with that, 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 or was that a time of your life that you, you know, that once you do it, it's over. I mean, like, well, I, why aren't you out there continuously traveling? Why, well, you know, why don't you stay on the road, so to speak? Uh, you change different things. Um, tick your boxes. Mm. I think the important thing for me is to keep being able to, to scratch the itch. Um, I don't have, uh, a magnetic desire to hit the road for uh, for three years or four or eight um, anymore. Um, I love the concept of doing shorter trips. And if somebody said to me tomorrow, here you go, here's the money, 
spend a year going down through South America, I'd do it like a shot. But I still have to get the money together and the freedom from responsibilities to be able to do it. So that doesn't make me any different to anybody else. Those two things are the crunches, aren't they? The mm-hmm. money and the freedom from responsibilities. And, and this and this where you run into this all the time where people, you know, are, are interested. They would love to do an adventure like you did, but they can't because they have too many responsibilities. And and I think mm. you even said before, w- early on when you were, you know, talking about, uh, well, I guess maybe when you wrote your first book, I'm not sure when it was, but you would get people approaching you. Your response was sort of at that time was well, all you have to do is save your money and go out and do it. But everybody can't do it. It's not reality. Right. And that's that's almost what you're what you're in now. You're in a different place. Yeah, that's true. I don't know that I've ever, for, or certainly for not for a long period of, of time, have I thought that. I might have thought it initially, but that thought changed um, very rapidly, in part because of the books. Yeah, uh, maybe I've said that wrong, Sam, because maybe it was when you were on your trip that you'd run into people and they were asking you yes. or something, and you might have said to them, yes. well, all you have to do is save your money and, and go. Yep. Yeah. No, that's that's um, that's that's more like it. Um because when I wrote into Africa, I wrote the preface and I wrote very clearly in my mind that there are people who just can't go. And there was one particular guy called Charlie um, who I met. And um, he was the only son. His mother was heavily disabled. And he said, almost with tears in his eyes, I would so love to be able to do what you have been doing, but I can't. If I do, who's going to look after my mother? And I absolutely admired and respected this person. And the reality for a lot of people is they have got responsibilities and those responsibilities need to come first. What sort of world would we live in if people didn't take responsibility seriously? But in time, Charlie may well still have been able to hit the road. Things may have happened. Um, Circumstances change, whatever. Um, So yeah, I hope he kept his dreams alive and I, I hope he yeah, he managed to make the big trip happen for himself. Just because somebody can't do it now doesn't mean that they can't do it in due course. Mm-hmm. Adventures begin with dreams, and it's keeping those dreams alive that's the most important thing, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And and, and now what you're finding is the, the small adventures that you're doing are enough sort of to keep you energized. Well, they are. But, you know, one of the keys for me is that I want to share I want to encourage people to travel. And one of the reasons that I love doing the shows and presentations and things like that is because it gives me a chance to shake hands with people, to have private conversations with them. Um, The sort of things that if I'm sitting at home promoting books and, and selling them online and all of the rest of it, I can't do. And out there meeting people, spending time with them, learning about them and sharing answers to their questions. That's just brilliant fun. Before you left on your trip, you you actually had yourself into a a good job. I think you had a house, sort of all the trappings of what Mm. most people would think, you know, that, that I guess our traditional lifestyle is. Um, Mm -hmm. Then you went off on the road and you messed everything up (laughs) and you've come back, you you change yourself completely. Now you're doing, I mean, COVID aside, you're doing presentations where you go to meeting people all the time. You do a lot of shows and things and you've really, um, You've earned yourself a, a position as I, I always think of you as an ambassador, Sam, because you're always out there saying positive things about about motorcycle travel. But when you sit down with your friends now, maybe even those people, if you do see those people that you sat in the bar with, uh, I remember in Into Africa, you, you're saying about how you got started on the trip and how you chose your bike. If you're sitting back talking with those people, they've went the traditional route. Maybe they've got their their houses, they've got a nice retirement or, or whatever the case is. 
do you ever have any regrets? Is there, is there any, and I, I hate asking that question because I'm, I hate to I put somebody in a position like that. So maybe, maybe I should just say, have you ever had thoughts of what if I had stayed at that job? Would I be more comfortable? Did I take the right route? I mean, has there ever been any misgivings there? I had a very nice apartment. I had a sports car, all of those sorts of things. I had Italian handmade suits in, in the wardrobe, wow. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I was working so many hours and so hard and being so successful that I was inspired to keep doing it, but then had no time to see family and friends. I had no time to spend the money that I was earning. I had no time to go off and have experiences. And it was the sudden realization over too many beers one night that made me suddenly click, hang on a minute, what are you doing? Where is the quality of your life? Yes, you're being successful. Yes, you're making your bosses happy and you're making your your um, home company money and so on. But actually, are you happy? And I hadn't had time to even think about whether I was happy or not because I was just pushing and shoving to achieve more, um, to do better, to make myself better, to make myself more skilled, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'm quite happy for you to ask me the question, um, do I have any regrets? Mostly, no, I don't. But you always have to be aware that you're going to get old one day. But I've learned over the years that I don't need very much to have a happy life. I don't need, um, yeah, I don't need much. I need somewhere that's warm and dry, um, preferably has um, running water and, um, yeah, a roof that doesn't leak. And I need to have enough money um, for a few jollies and to, to put food on the table. And in the end, those basics, actually, you can live a good quality life on those basics, can't you? Wouldn't it have been more comfortable if you'd stayed at your job and you'd have your house and you'd have your pension? Of course. I might also have had a heart attack. I was working hard enough for that. That's a very good point, yeah. But, you know, this is, the, this is one of the things that um, gives me such a buzz about humanity is we're all different. Um, some of us realize our potential. Some people never really realize what we want out of life. And some of us realize it, but aren't prepared to pay the price one way or the other, whether it's by chasing business or whether it's by bunking off around the world for eight years. Um, the world's full of individuals and, and that's part of the beauty of it. And I think that the keys are that we treat each other with respect and we listen to each other and we share. And if we can keep doing those things, um, the world's a pretty happy place, mostly. So that we, sounds naive, doesn't it? A little bit. Well, I don't it know. It, it, really you know, the thing naive. is, I, I know you're an optimist. You're, you're the glasses half full kind of guy. That's, that's just the way you are. Does that, does that come from travel or is that you were, you were born with that? I don't know whether I was born with it. Might've been a milk bottle half full. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just spoke with somebody recently. It was an interview I did just recently, but they were mentioning about babies, um, whether they're reactive babies there's experiments done where, you know, they'll take babies and if babies are very reactive to sound and to stimulation, they tend to be more withdrawn. And whereas other babies that aren't bothered by this excitation from outside, they tend to be more comfortable and they tend to be the, the, the go-getters, I guess, a little bit different in life. And, and, and get always that, that, and I've read about this before. I talked to this person about it. 
but it always makes me think about those things that, is it just personality? Like in other words, is, is, you know, Sam Manicom, Sam Manicom, because you were born that way, you, you were sort of destined for this sort of thing. But when you describe yourself as walking around with Italian leather, I, it just, it sounds like a completely different person polarized from what you are now. For sure. I'm not posting any photographs of me back in those days on social media. Not that I've got very many. And now you mentioned it, I haven't seen that. <laughs> yeah, one of these days perhaps I should, but um, I'm not going to rush to do it because I was a very different person. Um, I'd, I'd made myself a very different person. Um, I, I did a three three year trip and decided that it was time to grow up, and that I needed to have a house and I needed to have a big pension and and I needed to find out what I could do um, within business, and um, so I I blasted at it, and I suppose I tend to do that and um, take something on board and and put everything I've got into it and see what happens, um, but um, I'm definitely a lot happier traveling and I'm definitely a lot happier since I've been writing the books and magazine articles and um, yeah, doing the little bits that I can to, to share. This world of ours is magnificent. And if we sit at home and um, watch um, the mainstream media or certainly the more unscrupulous elements of the mainstream media, then we don't have a clue about how brilliant it is out there. And it really is wonderful. Um, you know, I've j an image just came through my mind about sitting um, in the mountains in northern Tanzania and just my eyes floating over the plains for just mile after mile after mile, watching birds of prey floating around on the thermal currents above me and the, the, the dry plain smell of Africa and just what a magnificent situation that is. And I write about these sorts of things in my books. And I, for example, arriving in Egypt, my goodness, was I wet behind the ear. Um, I, I passed my bike test three months before the day that I arrived um, in Egypt. And what a great place to celebrate three months on a motorcycle. Absolute sheer and utter lunacy. And talk about culture shock. It's full on, in your face, nonstop, all of the time. But some of my strongest memories are about how things sounded and the different smells and the expressions on people's faces and the things that I had no idea about, such as dealing with customs and immigration. Wow, what an eye-opener that was. And you know, all these sorts of things just write into the books because they are important. Um, hassles too. But um, yeah, no, it's this... Travel, it's its a wonderful thing to do. And if you can't travel, then reading books. And there are some magic books out there now, aren't there? Absolutely wonderful. I remember hearing you say to me, and, I, and I've heard you say it other, uh, in other places as well, that one of the things you love about travel are all the mad things that happen. Mm. Can you talk about that? Ah, gosh, I'm trying to think quickly which one to, to talk about. <laughs> Some of the mad things have been the things that I've done stupidly. Um, some of the mad things are, are things that um, local people have done. Um, I, I remember in India, for example, um, just sitting by the side of the road and two Buddhist monks came over and they started talking to me. And I'd seen plenty of Buddhist monks in India and in Thailand uh, before, but never had a conversation with one of them. And these two guys came to me and it turned out that um, one of the guys, his father was a motorcyclist and he 
but they've always been brought out to be passionate about motorcycles. So there we are, me and two Buddhist monks standing by the side of the road, and they're in their saffron robes, and the traffic's going past us, and all the horns honking and tooting, and the sound of the trucks and the buses and everything else. And here we are in our own little um, conversation. And it's just wonderful. Funny enough, two days later, um, an, an Indian policeman came over to me, and he said, oh, mister, I'm liking your motorcycle very much. Um, may I have it? And I said, well, no, you can't, but you can sit on it. And he said, yeah, okay. Uh, and moments later, he's sitting on the back, just grinning from ear to ear. And that's that popped another story into my mind in um, Kenya. Um, I was heading from Uganda back into Kenya, and um, I'd just um, been released from arrest in Uganda because I'd been a naughty boy and got caught. Um, it was fairly innocent, but um, I was in the wrong. Um, so I'm sort of heading into Kenya with um, a total sense of relief. And the first major checkpoint I come to, I get pulled over by this incredibly smartly clad poli um, Kenyan policeman. You know, khaki uniform, razor creases in the front of his trousers, um, highly polished and brushed hat. And, you know, one of these ones with the, 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 the peak on it in the front. And uh, he had a gun in his hands and his Sam Brown and all of this sort of stuff. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, uh oh, this doesn't look good. And the first thing he said to me was, you, what is this? Pointing at my bike. And I'm thinking, well, hang on a minute. It's a motorcycle, isn't it? And so I just said to him, well, um, it's a motorcycle. And he looked at me and he waggled his finger and he tutted at me and he said, mister, this is not a motorcycle. This is being a, a, a car on two wheels. Because, of course, I had panniers on and luggage and all of the rest of it. Anyway, it turned out that he'd only stopped me because he'd been on a checkpoint on the other side of the town the night before, and he was a motorcycle nut. So he'd asked to be on this checkpoint, waiting for me to come through. Oh, really? We talked motorcycles in, in the midst of all the chaos. I said to him, look, would you like to have a ride on the back? Got me on this. And his hat and his, his rifle were in the hands of one of his um, colleagues within seconds. And there he was sitting on the back of the bike. And we blasted off down the road together, dodging potholes and all of this sort of stuff. And I could hear him laughing. And when we got back to the checkpoint, he got off the bike and he was swaggering around amongst his mates. And it was just a joy to see. Those are the sorts of mad things that can happen to you when you're on the road and you take the time to, to chat with people. Some of the other mad things, though, can be things that, that go wrong. And we always joke about this with you, Sam, but you have a, a lot of them. Like in, in the in the first book, Into Africa, it starts out with you having a, an accident and you find yourself in jail. And this was a major thing. You, you got to read the, the book to, to get the full story. But um, it's a it's a huge deal. Mm -hmm. You could be looking at, um, well, I imagine you could be looking at life. What, what was the potential punishment? Um, I never actually found that out. I was charged with um, speeding, driving without due care and attention. Both of those were traffic offences, but they also charged me with um, attempt to commit grievous bodily harm. So they were saying that I'd driven at this person on purpose. Mm. And I ended up in a jail cell and nearly raped in there and all sorts of things. It still is the scariest thing that's that's ever happened to me. But at the same time, it was yet another situation where people, um, the goodness of people um, came to the fore. Um, I, I, I was, the accident was seen by a retired captain from the Tanzanian army. And uh, he 
kilometers into town every day to come and um, interpret for me because my Swahili was good enough to, to, to buy things in the market and to have a, a good old laugh with the ladies sitting cross-legged with, surrounded by their papayas and mangoes and so on. Um, but it certainly wasn't good enough to deal with the seriousness of this. And he, he neglected his farm. Um, just to come in and interpret for me every day. And this guy ended up putting his farm up as bail for me. Um, what a phenomenal thing to, to, to do. And this sort of stuff, not to this level, of course, because this is just, for me, um, thankfully, a unique experience, but the kindness and generosity of people is out there. Um, I don't know how many, um, what's, what the sentence would have been, but um, 15 years African jail. And one of those uh, jails. So after something like that, something so major as that, how do you not want to quit travel? Because th- that had to be like, well, like you said, the scariest moment in your life, right? Having, having to deal with that. H- how do you keep going after that? How do you walk out of there and say, oh, that was okay? For several days afterwards, I was feeling so stunned by what had happened. But, you know, my ambition was to make it down to Cape Town. And at the time, that was what I wanted to do. Um, I had no idea whether I was going to make it. And this particular um, episode made me wonder whether I had a cancer chance of making it. But, you know, that was my, my target. And so um, I was still within my visa time, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought, right, okay, well, come on, let's let's just keep going. I was almost at the border with Malawi. And all I could think about was, was I doing the right thing? What right had I got to injure somebody else because of my holiday? Mm. And um, I saw a lay-by, you know, a pullover come up and and, um, pulled over into it and parked up in the shade. And I was standing there having a drink of water and just, you know, thinking, well, actually, maybe this is a sign to you that you're doing something completely wrong. Maybe um, fate or the gods or whoever else you want to say is just saying, actually, this isn't for you. You need to find something else to do with your life. And I was already calculating the distance to the nearest port and thinking about um, finding a shipping agent and where I would ship the bike to and those sorts of things. Um, When a voice came out of the shadows behind me and this young voice said, hello, mister, where are you going? And there was a young lad, about 11 years old, I guess, just sitting in the shadows. And I hadn't seen him because he was right in the dark of the shadows. And he and I started talking. And what an astute kid this was. He was out doing his version of what I was doing. So basically, he had a knotted handkerchief on a pole. And he was out exploring before he had to take on his duties as a man in the village. He must have had a very enlightened father to encourage him to go and do that. And he and I just clicked. And... So I felt, well, I can tell him some of the story. And his his comment to me was, um, I don't want you to leave my country with these thoughts in your mind. This situation was not your fault. You must go to my village um, and spend some time living with my people. Um, You must learn to to love Africa again. And I just thought, wow. Gosh, you know, my skin's tingling again. Um, I just thought, wow. And I thought, yeah, okay. This, if you believe in fate or the gods or whatever, then this is obviously what is meant to happen. And I found my way to the village using his directions. He didn't know what a map was. 
Um, and his directions were 300 miles of absolute perfection. His directions were, well, you need to walk for half half a day in um, in that direction until you come to the three rounded hills. There you turn left. Another half a day's walk until you come to the three baobab trees. These were his directions. Of course, I was on a motorcycle. Is he going by I mean, memory or has he got this written down? No, this is all in, in his mind. Oh, wow. This this is very typical for developing world countries. The people just know these things. They take note of of those things when you're traveling. He may never have done the route before that got him to this particular spot, but he remembered those directions absolutely perfectly, and he was spot on. And I made it to the village and had such a fantastic time there that I just thought, no, actually, um, he was right, and I carried on with the journey but just had my eyes open that much more to um, people and individuals and realized that everybody that I was seeing, it was just an underliner to me that everybody I was seeing, everybody that I was talking to had their own fascinating stories. Um, And it it ended up adding another layer of just such importance and and variation to the the journey for me. Um, So if it wasn't for that young boy you would have probably called it quits at that point. Things would have been completely different. Yep, absolutely. Um, more than likely. More so, than likely. Now, the, the way you think, like I mentioned, you sort of look at this, the glass is, is half full. Um, that's one way, but you also, you have, a, you have an interesting way of looking at people, you know, saying that 95%, you believe that 95% are, are good and everything. Has this thought process ever failed you miserably? Have you ever got to a point where you think, wow, that just didn't pan out in this one? Um, I've put myself in situations where I've come across the 1%, but every time that happened, I knew that I knew better. Um, gosh, I'm umming a lot. You're, you're really challenging me with these questions, Jim. So I'm using ums frequently as thinking moments. It's okay. You can use silence. That's fine. (laughs) No, my attitude towards people hasn't changed. I, I I get more bothered by what's happening with social media in that social media is allowing people to be rude and aggressive towards each other with no real depth and no being held to account for what they're saying. And that bothers me a lot. But I know people who are like that, for example, on Facebook, but I know these people from face-to-face conversations and in some people I've been in their homes and I know that that's not who they really are. And it, it bothers me that social media is allowing people or encouraging people to do that. Mm. It's almost as if it's allowing the inner demons to come out, but I know it's not them. Uh, no, I've, I'm, I'm a great believer in humanity. I think that most people are, um, they're good. Because I'm just thinking that really what it does, is it kind of proves your theory, I guess, in a way, because, you know, you've, you've went through um, your adventures and you've sort of learned along the way that you, you want to trust people and that you find most times that you, you can trust people unless your, your gut feeling tells you otherwise. And that's, that's kind of how you're living your life. Well, that is how you're living your life right now. It's the same way, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And it yeah, works. It really is. And I, I learned quite early on that fear is a really dangerous word. If we fear things, then we are just oozing negativity. It's stopping us do things. It's stopping us have a go. It's stopping us stretching ourselves. We're 
creating an image of vulnerability or aggression because human beings tend to behave in one way or the other when we're afraid, don't we? Mm -hmm. We either make ourselves vulnerable because we're backing off and we look afraid or we're countering that fear by being overly aggressive and just hammering our way through a situation, come what may, and people, things fly off us as we're we're trying to to defensively deal with something preempting. So fear, I think, is a really dangerous thing. And I try not to be afraid of things, but I do try to turn the word fear into respect. In other words, if I'm heading into a situation that I don't understand, where I am uncomfortable, I know that I'm making myself vulnerable. I go into those situations with a respect for those things. And that means that I'm thinking positively. If I go into a border crossing, for example, fully respectful of the fact that I don't know what of the paperwork that I'm supposed to have, I don't know which of the officers that are dodgy and which are the ones that are um, kosher and um, really going to be straight with me, et cetera, et cetera. If I go in with, with the respect of, of those things rather than fear or nervousness about them, actually, you tend to be that much more relaxed and that much more awake and therefore that much more aware of what's happening. And instead of um, letting people take advantage of you, for example, and there's always going to be a shark swimming in the pool of the environment that you're in and border crossings um, are wonderful pools. You're, you're going to get the full range of characters in a pool. It's it's almost like being an airport, for example. And you sit if you arrive early for your flight and you people watch. You, you can work out who's the businessman in a hurry, who's late, who's missed his plane, uh, who's yeah. going on holiday, who's worried about where they're going and all of those sorts of things. And if you go into a, a, an airport late and flustered and that sort of thing, then you're fearful that you're not going to make your plane. And that means that you start ignoring all of the things that are actually interesting that are going on in an airport. Uh, the same thing with the border crossing, the same thing that when you're in a busy market in Southeast Asia, for example, if you walk into that market uncomfortable, nervous that somebody's going to rip you off or rob you or whatever else it is, rather than just aware that it's possible and being alert, then being aware and being alert, then you're not making yourself a victim. And so uh, you can go in there and you can chances are you won't have anything happen to you at all. And it's it's that's why fear is so dangerous. I've just used a couple of very light examples there. Uh, fear is dangerous. It's a negative. Changing the word fear into respect is such a positive and, and opens up all sorts of opportunities. It's like you see somebody walking down the street towards you and you're very nervous of them because you have no idea who they are and you can't work out whether they're somebody to be fearful of or not. Treat that person with respect, give them a handshake and a smile and all of a sudden you realize that they were just as nervous of you as they were, as you were of them. And the ice is broken. The next thing is, you know, you're sitting by the, in a roadside cafe having a cup of tea together. When you say respect, it, it, respect that person, you, you're not necessarily saying respect them so much as an individual's respect the situation. Is that what you're saying? Because that, that's what I took it as to begin with. No, I'm saying both. Oh, both. Yeah, because why should I disrespect somebody who hasn't proven to me that they deserve disrespect? Do you ever think it's you? I mean, you know, you, you, you think that you, you find 95% of people are good, 4% or I think is what you said, not okay. And 1% were villains. I believe those are the numbers that you gave me. And then just the general thing of, of um, finding that you always, you bump into people who, who um, help you out, who you befriend. Is it you? Does it come from you? You know, I'd never thought about it. Because I mean, I, I, you know, if, if you were a different type of person, you know, if you were more closed, you know, in, in a personality sense, 
would you have the same experiences? No. No, I have a friend who uh, traveled down through Africa, uh, super guy, but he was very closed off to dealing with people. He dealt with people when he had to. And he found Africa very difficult because he wasn't getting the joy factor to, to balance out with the hassle factor. And every journey is going to have its hassle factor, but life has got hassle factor. Just my day to day, I've had half a dozen things that have been, made me groan and think, oh, for goodness sake. But I know that if I step back from those things, then, you know, um, yeah, it's it's just something new that I've got to learn how to do or deal with. But when you're on the road, you get hassles. And if you can't find the balance for the hassle, then you're gonna you're just gonna struggle all of the time. And where's the joy in that? And the balance from hassle can come from an absolutely fantastic view. It can come from a a quirky, I didn't know that moment. Or it can come just from laughter with a stranger. And laughter with a stranger is one of the biggest joy points uh, from from the journey. But it also comes from letting things go. So, so when something happens to you, for instance, even the accident that we talked about, it comes from letting that go. If you're if you're unable to let that go, you you let it go because you, your interaction with this young boy um, who who steered you to his village. But if you're unable to let that stuff go, mm-hmm. you're nowhere. I mean, I mean, you're well, seeing things completely different. You're 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 closed off, and I think you're going to have a different experience. And because I'm I'm sort of curious about the whole personality thing. You know, whether it's whether it is driven by the people around you or whether it's driven from you, whether your experience, your wonderful experience and outlook on the world actually comes from within or is it really a reflection of what's around you? People sometimes, I can see it on their faces that I, they think I'm being flip. But sometimes I've been in situations and I, can, I think to myself, well, what's the worst that can happen? I can die. If I'm dead, well, I'm not going to worry about it anymore, am I? Because I'm dead. But actually, the chances of me dying are remote. So why don't I just keep this situation in perspective and do the best I can to get out of it? And that quite fatalistic sort of, but realistic attitude has helped in many situations. I think it's also helped that I try to travel without blinders or blinkers, as we call them in the UK. You know, like a horse races, some horses get too distracted by what's going on at the side. So they put flaps on either side of the the horse's eyes so they can only see in front. And I think that that's a dangerous thing to do when you're traveling because you're you're not being aware. You're not giving all of your senses the chance to be firing on all cylinders. And also you're missing out on some absolutely wonderful things because quite often it's not what's happening in the front that's the magic. It's what's going on to the side. And traveling slowly with your blinders off, that's when you see those things. And that's when you're encouraged to stop and actually take a closer look. And so often the laughter can happen from those things. What's When, when you're going around and doing the presentations, obviously pre-COVID, and, and it'll hopefully get back to that again soon. I hope so. When you're meeting people and, and you're talking with them and you're, and you're telling them about adventures and stuff, what, what's, your, what's your message to them? What are you, what are you trying to get across? If your dream is strong enough to go traveling, then find a way to go. You may not be able to go now, but don't let that dream die. Um, really value the things that you've got. I said to one chap, I was at, uh, doing a presentation at BMW in, um, in Washington. And um, wait, this chap and I got talking afterwards. And um, 
he said to me, yeah, but, you know, you're always positive about things. I've listened to you on Adventure Rider Radio and I've listened to you on Raw. You're always so positive. And I said, yeah, but that's because I'm grateful for the things that I've got. I said, go home tonight and walk around your house and look at all of the things that you've got and just take a moment to be grateful for all of the things that you've got. And I had an email from him the next day and he said, gee, Sam, I didn't realize I had so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that, that's that's gratitude, isn't it? I mean, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people who teach, you know, when you're trying to find ways to have a better life, they'll teach you about being grateful and gratitude for the things that, because, you know, it's funny because you say that, Sam, that he pointed out, he listens, you're always so happy. I mean, I, I've heard that many times, you know, well, Sam's always so happy and upbeat. He always sees everything, you know, as, as, uh, as good, you know, as from, from a good angle. But, um, I guess you're probably better off doing that, even if you were wrong, rather than the other way around. I agree. I suppose the reality is that I know how badly things can go wrong. Um, I had that episode with Jail in Tanzania. Uh, I had a 17-bone fracture accident crossing the desert in Namibia. I nearly died from malaria. I've had malaria seven times, and it's not pleasant. Um, I've been arrested for other things, and, and you know, things go wrong. Kidney. Um, yeah, yeah, my kidney. Um, mm-hmm. That was a... Um, a, a pretty scary situation where all of a sudden you find within a couple of months that you're down to 7% kidney function. And you're just thinking, well, jeepers, how on earth is life going to be from now onwards? Am I still going to have the energy to be positive about life? But then I just started counting the things that I'd got that would actually make those things manageable. And one of the key um, bonuses for me um, was to have an amazing partner somebody that I care for very, very much. And we haven't talked about burgers at all, but a lot of what I'm able to do traveling and with life comes down to having a partner like Birgit. Um, for people who haven't uh, listened to, to any any of my stuff already, Birgit and I met in New Zealand when I was in year two of what turned out to be the eight-year trip around the world. Birgit was riding a bicycle through New Zealand for six months. And um I wasn't looking for a girlfriend and she certainly wasn't looking for a boyfriend like me. And uh, I was a really tousled looking character. My hair was growing and I had a big bushy moustache and how on earth she could ever be interested in me. Goodness knows. (laughs) But we clicked. We just clicked. And both of us were uncertain about it. And it took uh, another year and a half or so before we decided, actually, we should travel together. And I was very nervous about traveling with somebody else because most of my trips have been solo, other than a few weeks here and there. And I quite enjoy my own company and I enjoy the freedom that being on my own gives me to take advantage of opportunities. When you travel with somebody else, then um, some people, they can't say they can't deal with the compromise. I don't look at it as being compromise. I look at it more as being um, aware of other alternative opportunities. Now, an example of that is... I've never liked museums. For me as a kid, they were full of dusty relics with poor poor signage and all of that sort of stuff. And you've got to remember that, you know, this is back when museums were like that and they weren't full of neon lights and electronic signage and all of the rest of it. I had no interest in going into museums. But Birgit is fascinated by them. She always has been. And so, well, when you're traveling with somebody else, it's not a case of me, me, me all the time. It's a case of us and the other person. So I started going in museums. What a wonderful thing that was to do. South America, Peru, for example. 
I would probably never have learned the reality of the places that I was traveling through had we not gone into um, uh, museums early on. Uh, just, just fascinating. And traveling with somebody else who is prepared to share, but also to look at your side of, of the coin, uh, that's, that's just a wonderful thing to do. And we complement each other. Uh, she's got um, a, a significant amount of drive in some things where I'm perhaps a bit lacking and vice versa. I do have to rein her in sometimes. You know, she's the sort of person that she's not a hugely experienced mechanic, but she does know quite a bit. But she's the person who in the middle of the Atacama Desert, she's got a bit of a niggly problem with her bike and she wants to take it to bits, even though we're sort of hundreds of miles from anywhere. And we've only got a few litres of water left because <laughs> she's fed up with this blooming noise and the response that she's getting. Uh, but I'm the sort of person that will listen, um, you know, it's not actually stopping the bike working and it's not stopping you going slowly and it's not sounding dangerous it's just a quirky sound why don't we keep going to the next big town and at least we'll have somewhere with water and food and maybe even somewhere that we can work on the bike where we can be out of the sunshine so traveling is a balance and um, i i really love it and the whole business with the kidneys and so on burgett's been absolutely incredible what a what a huge support and allowing me to do things and i'm saying allowing in inverted commas encouraging me to head off on uh, trips you know the book signing presentation tours in various different places and so on that's that's just been incredible i could not do what i do for a living wasn't for her um yeah, I'm a very lucky guy. Well, th- those are two things that we we didn't talk about, and and the the kidney thing, of course, that that affects how you travel right now, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, no, so absolutely. I mean, you you are limited physically, I guess, in in what you can imagine for your own travel. Well, I know it has got something to do with it. I don't talk about it very much. I'm quite happy that you brought it up because it's a reality and there are very many people in this world who are in a situation where they need a transplant and and organ donations still aren't as readily available as ideally um, they would be. And there are people who have had organ transplants and what a phenomenal difference it makes uh, to life. I I think of mine as um, being living on gifted time and yeah, I, it, it's just absolutely fantastic. But there are limitations. So there are quite a lot of things that I can't eat. Um, I'm now very fortunately at the stage where I'm on four monthly checkups. Um, I'm not allowed in the sun anymore. So that's why you'll never see me wearing short sleeve T-shirts. And you'll always see me wearing a, a hat with a brim because I need to keep my skin out of the sunshine because the drugs that you take to stop the, the kidney rejecting make you susceptible to skin cancer. Okay, that's mm. fine. Thanks very much. I'm really happy I've got the kidney transplant. It allows me to do all of the other things. And if I've got a cover-up, so I've got a cover-up. Um, if I if I hadn't had the transplant, I wouldn't be out there in a situation where I'd need to wear a hat and long sleeves anyway. So it's it's a case of keeping everything in balance. But um, yeah, I need those um, four monthly checkups just to make sure that there is nothing going wrong. But um, one of the things that I do every night as I'm going to sleep is I think about the things that have happened during the day that have been good. You do that every night? Every night. Wow. That's, that's and it's, quite the habit. It, it's a wonderful thing to do. It is, yeah. It means that I go to sleep happy and I go to sleep valuing what's happened that day. Wow. Where does that come from? 
don't know, just started doing it. And I suppose back in the days of business, I was going to sleep absolutely exhausted, not able to sleep because my mind was chewing through all of the things that I hadn't been able to do, that I hadn't met deadlines on, or that were just huge challenges and sometimes unreasonable challenges. And I suppose, um, yeah, that was that was part of what made me think, stuff it, I'm off. Mm. Even if it's just for a year to ride the length of Africa. And um, yeah, going to sleep with those thoughts in my mind, um, it, yeah, it, it really helps me to sleep well. What has um, COVID done for you? COVID has been um, pretty dire from my point of view with the way that I live my life. One of the things about having a kidney transplant is that um, you take all sorts of drugs to stop your immune system rejecting um, the replacement um, kidney. And, and that's forever? And that means that, that just, you have to do forever. Oh, wow. No, that's forever. So I'll, I'll always be um, packing a, a large container of um, tablets when, whenever I hit the road. It's quite entertaining. At one time, I was um, designing a, a, a trailer to tow behind the bike with, that I could carry um, the drugs in and um, three different cooling systems. So I was going to have solar, I was going to have a little wind power, and I was going to have a little generator on the back wheel because keeping the drugs at a certain temperature. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it was just another pothole in the road. There had to be a way around it. Um, but yeah, okay, so sometimes my bike looks totally overloaded, but that's actually because one of my panniers is half full of drugs. Wow. Um, but hey, who do I care? Um, I'm not shy and the drugs keep me alive and, and so on. But COVID has been a problem with that because, of course, I've had to stay tucked out of sight um, for, well, the last 18 months, um, pretty much. And um, that's meant no shows, no events, no book signings, none of that lot. And I see people who um, are authors and so on, and they're now getting out and about and doing shows and events and so on. And I'm still watching carefully what's going to happen next. Um, because, well, it would be a blooming big insult to the to the chap who do donated his kidney to me when he died and to that person's family for me to go out and do something really stupid that meant that my kidney rejected. And how dumb would that be? That would just be the ultimate in crass rudeness. So I'm quite happy to carry on being patient. But of course, it's affected my income significantly. And um, I've had to learn how to do things completely afresh. And I wisecracked earlier on about um, sitting at home um, doing stuff instead of being out. Well, that was a bit tongue in cheek, really, because that's what I've been doing for the last 18 months. <laughs> and um, it, it has been entertaining. It's just been a new set of challenges that have, I've had to to find a way to deal with. Um, and I've spent more time on social media. I've spent more time corresponding with people that I'm connected with. Um, sometimes I've become aware that somebody else is going through a problem in their lives that I wouldn't have done had I been held to skelter and out on the road and so on. And so actually just be able to have a chat with that person has been a really nice thing to be able to do. So there've been all sorts of, of silver linings to this, but, um, because I'm not connected with uh, a big publishing house and I don't have a huge marketing budget, then most of the promotion happens via social media. And I do fear that um, sometimes I'm being a little bit in, um, in people's faces. So I try to find interesting things to be um, posting and talking about because, well, who wants to have somebody saying, buy my books all of the time? How boring is that? So 18 months in your flat 
Well, you're not alone. You've, you've got Burgett there, but that explains why you're you're sitting there with no clothes on and home done tattoos all over your body and a beard that touches the ground. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. They're, they're just hangers, so there's nothing permanent. <laughs> was Sam Manicom from his home in the UK. You can follow Sam on social media and we've got links for that in the show notes on our website, adventureriderradio.com for this episode. Now, if you haven't read his books, probably now's the time to start. I remember when I stumbled across Sam many years ago, I knew nothing about him, but I found his first book called Into Africa and it took me no time at all to get into his story. And then I was drawn from one book to the next following his incredible adventures, because he, he gets into some serious trouble. He meets amazing people, but best of all, Sam tells a great story. He really does. Anyway, we've got the links um, for his books in the show notes for this episode. His website is sam-manicom.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We need your support. If you're not doing it already, drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com. Click on support. We've got some Adventure Rider Radio stickers, which everyone seems to like, that you can stick on your pannier, your toolbox, um, and we would love you to consider our patron support as well. And if you haven't done it already, we'd love a five-star review on iTunes. Drop by iTunes and, and uh, give us a fi- give us a five-star review on there. That lets other people find the show. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening and I will talk to you next week. Hi, this is Charlie Borman and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs>